Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Did you know, for instance, that Trevor Noah, the host of The Daily Show, who grew up as a mixed-race kid in apartheid-era South Africa, was his family's designated prayer? My grandmother and her friends were always enamored by the fact that I could pray in English in a fluent manner that they could not. They honestly believed that my prayers would get to God, I guess, faster or like they would be fast-tracked or I don't know what it was. It's also a combination of that and also the scripture in the Bible, you know, suffer little children to come unto me for this is the kingdom of heaven. And so if you have that as a combination, you have a little child who can also speak the language of white Jesus, then I mean, why would you not use that? Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know and thanks to Trevor Noah for helping us introduce the theme of tonight's show, Oh My God. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is a podcast that's also a game show that's also live journalism where contestants try to wow us with their IDKs or I don't knows. Now, given the gravity of tonight's theme, religion, we've put together a panel of three comedians, of course. Would you please welcome John Fugelsang, Tammy Sager, and Aman Ali. Excellent. Let's start with Mr. John Fugel saying, what do we know about you so far? We know you are a comedian, actor, and host of Sirius XM's Tell Me Everything. We know that your parents are a former Catholic nun and a former Franciscan brother. I'd love to know the meet-cute story there. Can you? Uh, <laughs> it involves lepers, believe it or not, in really? Africa. Yes. And tuberculosis. A lot of romance. We're- <laughs> They were both working then. Uh, she was a nurse nun, yes. And he was a patient in Holy Family Hospital no in Brooklyn. Kidding. Yes. So John Fugel saying, tell us something we don't know about you. Uh, I recently set a record uh, for the deepest conversation in history. <laughs> uh, I did a one-hour talk show for my radio show in a two-man submersible 1,002 feet below the Bermuda Triangle. And we had guests, uh, Lewis Black and Mark Hamill and David Crosby called in. And uh, as eels and clownfish and lionfish went around my, my uh, submersible, uh, we had a talk show with banter. Wowzer. Wait, th- so the guests called in. Because mm. I, 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 uh, I was already imagining Mark Hamill and Lewis Black in the submarine yeah, together. So they, they were in a diving bell outside <laughs> the submersible. I feel we should abandon this show and just do that show now. <laughs> that is awesome, John. Thank you so much for being here. Next up, Tammy Sager. We here at TMS IDK are big Tammy Sager fans. Let's see what we know about you. We know you've written for TV shows, including Inside Amy Schumer, Girls, and How I Met Your Mother. We know that you were born in Israel and that your parents are a microbiologist and a mathematician, which, if my math is correct, means you may be Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, Tammy, we also know that you had a one-woman show about your experiences at math camp. It was called Tales from Math Camp. Do you still you want to do a little piece of it here? <laughs> no one wants that. One number? <laughs> What's your favorite number, Tammy Sager? Oh, uh, 23. That's mine. I'm not kidding. Why was 23 your favorite number? I don't know. I, there's something about it I find really appealing. Is it because it's orderly too? Like no, you know what? I don't feel an orderliness to it. I kind it feels kind of jagged to me. Tammy, <laughs> tell us something. I'm afraid to ask that we don't know about you. Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid uh, growing up in Chicago, there was a a Jewish TV show called Beyond the Magic Door, which was sort of. Uh, secretly Jewish. Like, I didn't know watching it, it was Jewish. And then you'd be like, oh, in the land of dreidel. But uh, I got to audition for it, which I was very excited about. And uh, I sang um, Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree. They asked me to stop. Uh, but you recovered okay? Are you still carrying mm-hmm. the scar about? Oh, I don't sing anymore mm. at all. <laughs> Having an adult tell you to stop singing will make you stop yeah. forever. <laughs> Well, Tammy, we're delighted you are here tonight with us. And our final panelist, Aman Ali, here's what we know about you, Aman. You are a storyteller and stand-up comic. You are co-creator of 30 Mosques in 30 Days. Can you tell us about that for a sec? Um, Yeah, it was just a jackass idea my friend and I had. So we literally drove to a different state every single day around the U.S., just blogging about it, telling the stories. And we actually covered all 50 states doing like 25,000 miles of driving. It was amazing. Mm. It was a lot of fun. So, uh, Aman, we know that you're obsessed with the NBA, it says here. What does that mean? Uh, I actually work for the NBA as well, so I do a lot of work with them. Uh, but yeah, who wait, said wait, like, You just travel around, go into mosques, being a comic, and work for the NBA. I'm living the dream. I'm living the brown man's dream. Uh-huh. <laughs> Love it. Aman, tell us something we don't know about you. So, when I, in high school, uh, I was on the wrestling team, and I was 6-0. I was undefeated, super excited, and I made it to the uh, state tournament and in the semifinals, the person I had to wrestle was a girl. I got really freaked out. I go up to her and I, I explained to her, I was like, hey, I'm a Muslim man. And, you know, culturally, I feel a little uncomfortable wrestling you. And she's like, oh, that's, no, that's fine. Like, I'm a Sagittarius, so that's okay. You don't have to worry about it. And so I ended up, like, basically praying not to get an erection the whole time. And then I lost. And so, like, the only wrestling match I ever lost was to a girl. Wow. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was, just, it was just a lot to deal with that. Do you think that praying to not get an erection is a common prayer? Um, in my life, it is. In my life, it is. In my uh, life, it Speaking is. for Catholic kids, uh, yeah. oh, yes. Tammy? Every day. <laughs> Aman, Tammy, and John, thanks to all of you so much for being here tonight. It is time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it works. A series of contestants will come on stage and deliver their IDKs. Once we've heard all of them, you will pick a winner. You will be asked to judge their IDKs on three simple criteria. Number one, does it surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? So to help with that last factual part, would you please welcome, as our fact checker, secret weapon, AJ Jacobs. AJ is host of the podcast Twice Removed. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Year of Living Biblically. AJ, so the year that you lived biblically, how, how far did you take it? I took it as far as I could. My goal was to follow 
all the rules of the Bible as literally as possible. Mm -hmm. So the Bible says you cannot shave your beard. So I have the topiary hanging from my chin. Bible says uh, you have to stone adulterers. So Mm -hmm. I figured I should give that a shot. Uh, Was this someone you knew? It was not. It was... uh, It was the middle of the year, and I was really getting into it. So I had the beard, I, had, I was wearing a robe and sandals, and I was in Central Park here in New York, and a guy came up to me and said, why are you dressed like that? And I said, well, I'm trying to follow the Bible, all the rules, though, from the Ten Commandments to stoning adulterers. He says, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And I said, well, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that, what a wonderful offer. I actually, I took out a handful of stones because I had been carrying around stones <laughs> hoping to run into an adulterer. And, uh, and I showed him to it. They were small, pebble-sized. And he was very aggressive. He grabbed the stones out of my hand and threw them at my face. So I thought, an eye for an eye, also in the Bible, <laughs> throw one back at him. So that's how I you checked let him it off the it. list. Yeah. Uh, AJ, we are delighted to have you back. Tonight's theme you'll remember, is Oh My God, things we don't know about religion. Anything from rituals to laws to misconceptions. Now, before we bring up our first contestant, a final word to our panelists, it takes a lot of nerve and courage for these contestants to get on stage and try to impress people as impressive as yourselves. So you should be firm in your questioning, but I also encourage you to be kind, especially because before the night is through, you the judges shall also be judged in what we call our reference round, which we'll hear more about later. So it's time now to welcome to the stage our first contestant, Mr. Bruce Feiler. So Bruce, tell us what you do. Uh, I'm a writer. I have written a number of best-selling books, including Walking the Bible, and my latest book is called The First Love Story, Adam Eve and us. Mm, That sounds kind of great, Bruce. So I'm ready. So are our panelists, John Fugelsang, Tammy Sager, and Aman Ali. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Let's begin by going back to the beginning. In the opening of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve and places them in the Garden of Eden. And he says to them, as you'll remember, you can eat from anything you want except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So my question for you is, what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In other words, what do they eat? So I want to say an apple. I was going to say apple because Jay-Z referenced it in New York State of Mind. He said, don't bite the apple Eve. Let's do it. (laughs) I don't believe it says what the fruit is specifically. Well, Mr. Catholic Education, interesting. Mm. Okay, so tell us more, Bruce. So the short answer is that the fruit is not named. We can state with confidence that it is almost assuredly not an apple because apples are not native to the ancient (laughs) Near East. So there would have been no apples at the time. So the idea that it was an apple came from the fact that the Bible was written in Hebrew, then translated, as you know, into Greek and then into Latin. And for 1,500 years, you could only read the Bible in Latin. And in Latin, the Hebrew word for evil is malice. And the Latin word for apple is malum. So that's where the idea of apple came from. And also where the idea of Adam's apple came from. The idea that Adam choked on the apple, which is Mm. why men have an Adam's apple. But there have been lots of other guesses. Some people think it was a pomegranate, carob, a quince, pear. 
I would say that the perhaps likeliest fruit would be a fig. Mm. We know there are figs there, right? Because when they were discovered naked, they covered themselves in fig leaves. And the most famous depiction of this in the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo paints Adam and Eve, and she's reaching up, and she grabs in her hand two figs in Ah. the shape of a scrotum. In fact, this image was so scandalous, the Vatican did not allow it to be reproduced for centuries. So I would suggest that it's a fig, but the most important thing I want to leave you with is that when Eve and then Adam eat the fruit, whatever it is, they don't die. He chooses Eve over God. It brings them together. They get kicked out. They stay together. They have two children. One murders the other. They stay together. It's a very romantic story. This fruit, the most famous aphrodisiac of all time. Can I throw out their mango? Because there's mango trees all over. In Israel, you, you're drawing on your Israeli background? Yeah. <laughs> that was that the, wrong? The kibbutzniks brought the mangoes, oh, actually, right. then years later. <laughs> Could have been acai. They were big on smoothies then, right? <laughs> there you go. So let me ask you this. It, what, you're saying it was a translation error, essentially. Yes? I would say it's not a translation error. Well, it's just it, a mix-up, uh, because the text, as John said, doesn't say... I don't think that most of even English Bibles would say apple. I just think that's what most people think. That's what Hollywood has done with it. That's what we that's what art history has done with it. Mm. But I don't think it's in most translations. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Like when did the apple get adopted into pop culture? So in all of those kind of 19th century romantic novels, it's always it's always an apple. And by the time Hollywood comes along and does the story a lot, mm. it's absolutely an apple. So interesting. Before we finish up here with Bruce, uh, let's check in with our fact checker, AJ Jacobs. Adam's apple was not an apple. What do you say, AJ? Bruce, of course, knows his stuff. I would want to add one thing. Uh, There are some people who argue that the forbidden fruit was a psychedelic mushroom. And uh, those people are usually pretty high. (laughs) But they point to a 13th century fresco in France. And I got to say, if you look at it, it does look like there are shrooms in that fresco. Panelists, later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner, so you might want to take down a few notes right now about Bruce Filer's IDK. And Bruce, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. Would you please welcome to the stage our next contestant, Martin Kahn's. Martin, where are you from? What do you do? Um, I am a development economist. I'm in the research department of the World Bank, and in my work, I do field experiments on finance and behavioral economics in different countries around the world. Now, Martin, our theme tonight is, oh my God, you, sh- you sure you're here on the right night? You have a... Uh, I am. I, right? I am pretty okay. sure. Martin, the floor is yours. What do you have for us? All right. So, um, banks in Indonesia regularly employ an in-house imam or religious scholar. Do you have any idea why that might be? Why do banks in Indonesia regularly employ an in-house imam or religious scholar? So Indonesia is a predominantly Muslim country, and I know, being a Muslim myself, uh, there's rules and regulations in regards to paying interest and other rates, and so maybe it's a way to consult to make sure that, like, everything is uh, okay when it comes to giving loans and just to verify that no interest is okay. That's pretty close. I I would think so. I mean, in in the Bible, you know, Jesus had his whole temple flip out over interest rates that that exploited the poor. Right. Uh, So I would imagine it has to do with uh, a sliding scale of interest rates depending on someone's economic status. I'm going to say mangoes. (laughs) 
Yeah, really not, not, not so close. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Martin, why do banks employ imams or religious scholars? So, um, over the last two decades, Islamic banking has become a really large and growing industry in um, Indonesia and many other Muslim countries. And so, Islamic banks offer, you know, like basically the same financial products that you would find at any of your um, regular local banks, um, with the difference that um, these products are structured so as to be consistent with the principles of Islamic law. That's basically where the in-house imam comes in. Um, they advise banks basically on how to properly set up and structure these um, Islamic financial products. And so as economists, this is really fascinating. And um, after talking to them, we thought that these religious advisors would also have a lot of tools to help these banks with risk management and in particular getting like you know, delinquent customers to um, repay their debts. And so we set up a, a, a field experiment with um, the credit card customers. And so the customers would either get just a simple SMS reminder on their mobile phone that they needed to pay off their balances, or they would get a reminder that included a quote from the Prophet Muhammad, which had been suggested by the bank's religious advisor. Wow. We were, we were so passive-aggressive. I love we it. Were, we, Muhammad would pay his loan back. <laughs> Why aren't you? Exactly. exactly. But like, it was suggested by the in-house imam. Did it we had, we you, had nothing Martin? to do with it. <laughs> we initially looked at a pretty mild quote, and the in-house religious advisor was pretty adamant that you know, he wanted something that was like a little more damnation. So what was it? So the quote was taken from the Hadith, which is um, stories about um, the teachings and the lives of the Prophet. And it said that um, not repaying your debt when you're able to is a sin. Um, and what we found is that um, a simple reminder did nothing to increase the number of people who were late on their payment, um, make them pay their bill. But the religious reminder increased repayment by as much as 15%. Um, what was really interesting and what, what, what kind of surprised us a little bit was that um, what people seemed to be reacting to was not the fact that we referred to religion or that we quoted the prophet. Instead, what they seemed to be um, reacting to was the moral message, the moral appeal contained in the message that says it's just not okay. And we found that out by sending out a version of the religious message where we took out all references to religion and just had, um, you know, that, that moral statement. Just not cool. Not cool, it's man. It's just not okay. It's, <laughs> it's, just not, it, it's just not okay. Like, you know. So you're saying that the explicit religious message increased repayment, but then right. when you remove the explicit religious part and just keep the moral part, that's what really worked. But what can you tell us about the, I guess, demographics of the people that it worked on? In other words, could it be that more religious people responded to the moral message? So these customers were all over Indonesia, and we found um, that the message had a bit more of a kick in rural areas of Indonesia and also in areas of Indonesia where people self-reportedly were more religious. But also the non-religious version of the message had a greater effect in those areas. So that suggests that you know, being religious makes you respond to like moral appeals more strongly in general. So interesting. Uh, A.J. Jacobs, how Islamic banks in Indonesia increased its payment of overdue debts? Anything to add to it? Well, I'm not an expert on Islamic debts, but I do know the Bible's laws on debt and payment, and the Bible commands employers to pay their workers every day. You cannot wait until the morning. It's in Leviticus 19, 13. So technically, 
monthly paychecks are an abomination. The Bible Thank also, you. AJ, I think, demands that all debts be forgiven in a jubilee exactly. year, but we're not hey. that based on Christian values. Did you know that when they build bridges in Iceland, they have troll experts? Really? To make sure that they're not upsetting homes of trolls? Yeah. No, it sounds 100% I'm so like, confused, but I love it. But it's, it, they, there is a, a, it is a troll-believing culture mm. in Iceland. Mm. Look, they descended from Viking rapists, so... And their language hasn't changed for like a thousand years. I had a bad trip there. <laughs> Martin, I love what your work has inspired in Tammy and elsewhere, and thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know tonight. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Mark Oppenheimer. Good evening, Mark. What's your story? I'm a journalist, and I'm the author of Weisenheimer, which is a memoir about high school debate. And these days I host a podcast called Unorthodox, which is a weekly humorous roundup of the news of the Jews from Tel Aviv to Telluride. (laughs) All right. I sense you may have a Jewish-flavored IDK for us, perhaps. Um, before I... Could I go off script and say I also wrestled a girl in high school? You did? Absolutely. Was it the same girl? Um, well, <laughs> she was tough. She was tough, maybe, but I actually was excited to wrestle her because I, I thought maybe... Well, I was, too. That was the problem. But, 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 but for you, it ended badly because it was your first loss. And for me, it was... Right? And for me, it was my only win. Oh. <laughs> I, like, I ended up one in six because in my seventh match, I got to wrestle a girl. There you no go. true story. Nice. Well, that is quite the coincidence, Mark, I have to say. So why don't you tell us what you've got tonight? All right. Let's say that you're a 30-year-old Israeli man. You have a beautiful wife and a newborn son. But then you come across some very troubling texts on your wife's phone and begin to harbor suspicions that she has been sleeping with her periodontist. What's more, the affair has lasted five years. You ask for a divorce and your wife grants it. As you're divvying up the marital property, you realize, wait a second, my newborn son may not, in fact, be mine. So you ask the courts for a paternity test, but the courts refuse. Why? Is this at all a reference to the King Solomon story of wanting to cut the baby in half? I, I, I want to say, you know, in, in, in Book of Numbers, uh, uh, God makes it very clear that if your wife is pregnant with another man's child, uh, that life is not sacred of that fetus. Um, but is it at all related to the fact that uh, whoever the husband is, under Talmudic law, it doesn't matter if it's a biologically different child? Uh, no. So, so this goes back to the concept of a mamzer. Now, in Yiddish and in Hebrew, a mamzer is, is a bastard. And so you'll hear this in America, you know, you, that guy who took my parking space, what a mamzer, right? But actually, in Torah, a mamzer is the issue of an adulterous woman, not an adulterous man. A married man can do whatever he wants and, you know, and does, Religion is the best. <laughs> but if a married woman has a child born to somebody who is not her husband, that child is considered a mamzer. And mamzerum, mamzers, have a, a particular stigma, which is that they can't marry a fellow Jew except for a fellow mamzer or a convert. Mm. And the stigma is so severe that it carries on to 10 generations of the issue of the original mamzer. 
So basically, the Mamzer has almost no marriage pool. So Israeli civil courts never order paternity tests to determine if a child was born to a married woman who's had an affair because they don't want any child or those subsequent generations to bear that stigma. They also, interestingly, do their best to look the other way. They do backflips to presume that maybe it wasn't adulterous. So even if she's estranged from her husband and her husband's been living in a foreign land, they say, well, maybe about nine months before the birth, he took an overnight flight, he took a red eye back, and they rekindled that original spark. It's, we can't prove they didn't have sex that night, so maybe it's actually the husband's child and it's not um, a momser. You so, guys need immaculate conception back. Yeah. So. <laughs> and so the court says momser's the word. Uh, I had to. Yeah. I had to. Yeah, you had to. I want to be in the momser dating class. Those sound like fun people. Those, that's like the damaged kind of person I want to date. The interesting thing is... Rabbis and courts are so reluctant to, to name anyone a momser that you can't actually find a momser. There's no one who's known to be a momser, but there is this urban legend that, that in fact, really ultra-Orthodox rabbis keep a secret blacklist of, of momserim and their mothers to make sure that they don't marry regular Jews. So is this related in any way to why Judaism is matrilineal? So originally, for the first, you know, thousand years of Judaism, before Talmudic times, it wasn't matrilineal. And you converted by marrying in, and these rules were not as fixed. But yes, it is kind of of similar uh, and related because you know who the mother is, but you don't know who the father is. AJ, you are uh, an adulterer. You know, no, 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 I got the story backwards. You, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. You, the other guy was. But um, you, you, what can you tell us about uh, the Momser well, plan here? Mark is absolutely right. But actually, I have a fix for this problem. What they need to do is use a version of the Bible that was printed in England in 1631. It's a famous version because it has a typo. The publishers forgot a word in the Seventh Commandment. It was a kind of important word. It was not. (laughs) So the Bible read, thou shalt commit adultery. It was the wicked Bible. And I do know that the the publisher was uh, fined 300 pounds, which is about $50,000 now. AJ, you are full of good stuff, and we thank you. And thanks, Mark Oppenheimer, (laughs) for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants will make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight, John Fugelsang, Tammy Sager, and Aman Ali. Our fact checker is A.J. Jacobs. And tonight's theme, you'll recall, is Oh My God. Would you please welcome our next contestant, actually a pair of contestants, Omar Bayramoglu and Scott Korb. All right, Omar and Scott, uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves. What do you do? I am a student in the master's program at Hartford Seminary. And Scott? Uh, I'm a writer. I live in New York City. Very good. And what do you have for us tonight, IDK-wise? I was a student in the third graduating class of Zaytuna College in Berkeley, California. And over the academic year of 2010-2011, I visited Zaytuna College to research a book I was writing then. I learned that the seed for this college 
uh, was planted by a Catholic nun and a professor at the Graduate Theological Union's Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, a woman named Sister Marianne Farina. So, what makes Zaytuna College so special? Uh, it's also the name of a country in a Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> Is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Fredonia. Yeah. Zaytuna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think... If I understand correctly, Zaytuna is an Islamically uh, accredited college, and I think it might be, is it the only one in the United States, the only accredited Islamic university? I think we're really close. So, Omar, go ahead. Zaytuna College opened doors in 2010. It it gained accreditation in 2015 and currently has 60 students in the four-year bachelor's program. The curriculum has an emphasis on an Arabic term, adab, which roughly translates to acquiring the tools of learning, demonstrating high moral character, analyzing subjects in relation to each other, and building a community through service. So the curriculum uses Islam, the religion of Islam, as a jumping-off point, but follows a traditional Western liberal arts system. We as students and as graduates come to see how the study of astronomy can raise issues in theology, how political science intersects with personal ethics, the rise and fall of civilizations is contextualized through the study of world religions, and the basics grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And some of my writing uh, about Sister Farina is contained in a chapter of my book. uh, It's called Light Without Fire. And it focuses on the special place of Jesus, a prophet within Islamic theology. Mm. The origin story of Sister Farina goes back to 2010 when she visited Zaytuna Institute, which was the precursor to the college. And she issued a challenge to Sheikh Hamza Youssef, who's the founder, one of the founders of the college. And she said this, you're one-fourth of the world's population. Where are the Muslim colleges? Where's the Muslim seminary to teach Muslims? And 10 years later, they open the college. What do more traditional or orthodox Muslims in the, in the States and elsewhere think of Zaytuna? It's seen as in a very positive light. I volunteered for the school in various venues and different events. And as the years have gone by between 2012 and 2016, more and more people from around the world, as far out there as Australia, come, pay homage, pay respects, ask questions, see what student life is like. So there's still this sense of traditionalism, this traditional Islam, but, you know, putting on a pair of glasses that you only find in the United States of America. So Zaytuna, correct me if I'm wrong, in Arabic, I think, comes from the Arabic word Zaytun, which is like olive, right? What's the story behind the name? You're correct. Olive trees are very particular, and they're very special. They can survive in harsh climates, which is why you find a lot of them in the desert. So... That's one aspect that, you know, a graduate would have. You're able to survive and able to think critically for yourself in whatever environment that you're in. You know, when I was visiting mosques, there was always a challenge with finding imams and leaders that, you know, take traditional religion, but also um, contextualize it, talk about modern issues. Are those things that were incorporated in the curriculum at all as far as like current affairs and societal issues? And They come up a lot more so during the theology classes that you'll find. So we go through the different philosophies from John Locke, John Stuart Mill, a little bit of Descartes, some Nietzsche. How's Greek life? (laughs) So interesting. A.J. Jacobs, Omar, and Scott have told us about Zaytuna College, America's first accredited Muslim liberal arts college. Anything to add? Well, Zaytuna is is very new, but I did find some interesting information on older uh, Muslim universities, in fact, very old, the Guinness world record holder for the oldest continually operating university is a Muslim university in Morocco, the University of al Karouin, excuse my pronunciation, founded in 859 AD, and mm. it's still in business. 
Omar and Scott, thank you so much for telling us something we didn't know. Great job. Would you please welcome now our next contestant, Travis Proctor. Hello, Travis. Where are you from? What do you do? So I'm an assistant professor of religious studies at Northland College, which is an environmentally focused liberal arts college in Wisconsin. Okay, Travis, tell us something we don't know. Okay. What religious text do you think contains the following line? Quote, any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. End quote. John Fugel saying you've showed quite a dexterity with uh, texts. I, I want to say the Bible. I was going to say the Bible too, yeah. What, book from the Bible perhaps? Uh, let, let's go with Leviticus since they're big on rules. So it's actually from the New Testament oh. rather than the Old Testament. It's got to be Paul. Yes. Corinthians? That's right. Oh, Paul. Yes, yeah, no. S- right. Strangely has issues with women. Who could have <laughs> <Right>. guessed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So yes, this, this comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which is part of the New Testament of the Christian Bible. Uh, according to Paul, women should be subordinate to men, and the veil should serve as a public symbol of this subordination, mm. uh, especially when they appear in public or uh, speak out in church. Uh, This was likely influenced by ancient Jewish and Roman practices. It seems to have been very popular, especially among upper-class Roman and Jewish women. So this is probably where Paul encountered it. So what's surprising about this is that, you know, in today's society, veils are typically associated only with Islam. Um, So much so that veils are often cited as evidence that Islam is incompatible with so-called Western liberal values. So, for instance, you might have heard recently about the burkini, a type of swimwear that covers everything except for the eyes and the hands, Mm. uh, was banned in France in part due to its association with Islamic custom. So I think the example of Paul demonstrates that uh, female head coverings have been an important part of the religious tradition most closely associated with Western society, Christianity. Uh, in fact, uh, several early Christian interpreters of the first three centuries or so uh, cite Paul as part of their argument that women should wear veils anytime they appear in public. Um, and this practice even continues today among other non-Islamic traditions such as Christian Mennonites, Catholic and Orthodox nuns, as well as some Orthodox Jewish women. Only when they're thinking... Right, so they could take off the veils and not be thinking, and then they're not disgracing anything. That's right, right, right. yeah. So, Travis, is the head covering or veiling or whatever, is it thought to be more in deference to God or to human men then? So Paul gives a lot of different reasons within this really short passage that scholars try to kind of untangle. Um, (laughs) One thing, it does seem that he wants them to show deference to human men. But the other thing is that he has this weird throwaway line at the end of the passage that says, because of the angels. Uh, it was a wider belief in the Roman world and among Jews and Christians that sometimes things like angels and demons could attack, especially women, and certain articles of clothing could help protect you from those types of beings. Actually, the word for angels in Hebrew is similar to pigeons. <laughs> so it's about <laughs> pigeons pooping on ladyheads. Right, 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 right. So um, I, th- I think part of this, um, this kind of broader multi-religious background uh, encourages to both, when we talk about veils in the public sphere today, you know, account for this broader background instead of just thinking it's just you know, unique to one tradition, but also try to consider more closely the views and voices of the women who choose to make this a part of their religious practice, whether it's Muslim women or otherwise. Um, and if so, maybe we could kind of be better informed when these things become matters of public dispute. No. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> no. Travis, how did you get onto this line of inquiry? What's your specialty? So, yeah, I work on demons and angels in early Christianity, and so it's because of this connection that Paul says because of the angels. And what's interesting is that we don't really know if Paul meant that, that these are like attacking angels, but a later interpreter of him, Tertullian of Carthage, a couple hundred years later, does say that it's because of these angels attacking women is why Christian women need to wear veils. 
Let's go to our fact checker, A.J. Jacobs, Christian and other veiling. What more can you tell us? In the 1500s, the Capuchin monks were, and nuns, both men and women, were famous for their hooded robes. And the, those robes had a very distinctive color, a, sort of a light brown color, which is the same brown as cappuccino coffee. That's why it's called cappuccino coffee. I do have one last additional fact about this is... Um, the head covering verse in the Bible is in the exact same section as a verse uh, uh, that men should not have long hair. It's First mm-hmm. Corinthians. It is controversial because uh, according to metalforjesus.org, mm. which is the number one website for Christian metalheads, mm. uh, love it. That verse only applied to the people of Corinth, not all Christians. AJ, thank you, and thank you to Travis Proctor for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. And would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Mr. Mark Hay. Hey, Mark, what do you do? I am a freelance writer. So, Mark, what do you have? All right. What can an atheist Chinese bureaucrat do in Tibetan Buddhism that a lama, a Tibetan Buddhist monk, cannot do i'm guessing a lot of things but you're looking for (laughs) you're looking for one yeah one very big specific thing you would think a monk would be able to do oh marry a couple no so this is uh just help us understand the equivalency this is like saying what could someone who helps run like the democratic national convention Go over to the GOP and do, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically, a, this is saying, what, what could uh, a rabbi walk into a church, step up to the pulpit, and do? Does it involve ritual? It does involve, uh, you could call it ritual, but it involves a major tenet of mm. Tibetan Buddhism. I think we need you to tell us something we don't know. According to Chinese law, the bureaucrat has the power to select which child is the reincarnation of a monk. Wow. Now, the monks have input, but they don't have the final say anymore. Uh, just for background, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, we all reincarnate, but most of us do it accidentally. Monks have the ability to decide when, where, and how they're going to reincarnate, but they don't always leave that information behind, so it's usually left to other monks to decide. China's been trying to mess with this process for a while, and historically people say that people have been politicizing reincarnations for centuries. But China's really been trying to mess with it. There were a couple of famous examples in the 1990s, and in 2007 they went ahead and passed... State Religious Affairs Bureau Order Number 5, which declares that every monk who is going to reincarnate has to be registered with the state, (laughs) that uh, when the following monks, the monks who work with him, try to find his reincarnation, they have to register with the state, and they have to submit their decision to the state, and the state can deny their decision, and in some cases pressure them into a different choice. Now, the Chinese bureaucrats say that this is necessary because there are so many fake Buddhists out there yeah, who are building Buddhist people. Fraud. Yeah, Buddhist, Buddhist fraud. fraud. Buddhist fraud. Widespread. No, there are actually millions yeah, of them. This, there have actually been cases of Buddhist fraud in um, Times Square. And it is a legitimate problem. And there also has been some hinkiness in the past about people maybe selling their reincarnations. Steven Seagal is supposed to be a reincarnated lama. And I find that kind of that odd. 
Wow. Uh, but most China watchers will agree that this is actually the state trying to hijack and co-opt the reincarnations of major lamas, including the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama has come out and said, this is absurd, this is laughable. And in return, the Chinese state has come out and said, uh, the Dalai Lama is a blasphemer. Hmm. So what a shock. The atheist communist government has legislated itself into the heart of Tibetan Buddhist theology. Uh, A.J. Jacobs, uh, Mark Hay has been telling us about that, that in Tibetan Buddhism, you need a, a Chinese government license to be reincarnated. Anything to add? Well, I was interested to see that one of the most famous reincarnation fans in history was General George Patton. Mm -hmm. He believed that in former lives he was a Roman soldier, that he fought in the Crusades, that he was a general for Napoleon, so he was like a military Dalai Lama. All right, Mark Hay, thank you so much for telling us something we don't know about reincarnation. And that concludes our round of audience contestants. Some great stuff tonight. Let's give them all one more round of applause, please. Thank you so much. It is time now for our panelists to vote. They're going to use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites. And the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner, who will join us back on stage later. So, who will it be? Bruce Feiler with Adam's Apple was not an apple. Martin Kahn's with Sacred Texting. Mark Oppenheimer with Inglorious Momsers. Omar Bayramoglu and Scott Korb with The Very Model of a Modern Muslim College. Travis Proctor with Christian Veiling. Or Mark Hay and Licensed to Reincarnate. While the votes are being cast, let me say this. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to come tell me something I don't know, or if you want to come see the show taped live in New York, one of the other cities that we are visiting, just go to tmsidk.com on social media. We're at tmsidk underscore show. Okay, the panelist votes are in. Once again, thank you so much to all our contestants. Sadly, there can only be one winner. And tonight, that is Martin Kahn's with his IDK about sacred texting at Islamic Banks. Congratulations, Martin. Now, to mark your accomplishment, Martin, we'd like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge, which is suitable for framing. You'll also join us back on stage later to face one of our panelists in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Now, which panelist will you face? That's what we are about to determine right now. Panelists, now it's time for each of you to tell us something we don't know about tonight's theme, Oh My God, and this is what we call the reference round. And what that means is that we're going to give you a place to look for something interesting, and that is a volume of one of our favorite academic journals, the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. And we'll give you a minute to page through it and find a really good IDK for us. So John, Tammy, and Amon, have fun reading. Get ready to tell us something we don't know. While they are working, we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll hear what they came up with. Our live audience will pick a winner, and that winner goes head-to-head with our audience winner in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know.
Welcome back. It's time for our panelists, John Fugelsang, Tammy Sager, and Aman Ali to tell us something we don't know based on their having spent a couple minutes with the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. Uh, let's hear first from John Fugelsang. What did you find there, John? Well, uh, I, I was going with the really catchy title, Bible Beliefs, Conservative Religious Identity, and Same-Sex Marriage Support, Examining Main and Moderating Effects. I'm sure you're familiar I thought, why not really briefly tell the story of uh, the time that uh, many folks believe Jesus uh, blessed a same-sex union. This appears in both Matthew and Luke, the famous story of the centurion who approaches Jesus and the apostles saying, hey, my slave is dying, will you please heal him? Jesus says, you don't even have to ask, man, your slave is healed. The apostles get all upset saying, this guy's an occupying general of the Roman army, why are you healing his slave? And Jesus says, shucks, y'all, that's what I do. I paraphrase from the Hebrew. Um... (laughs) Interestingly enough, both Matthew and Luke in the original text did not use the word slave or servant. They used the word pais from the Greek, which means beloved boy. What do we know about our friends, the Romans? We know that they would leave their wives at home and bring their young men with them. And when you actually consider it through that prism, the story makes a lot more logical sense. Why would an occupying officer seek out a local homeless Jewish mystic faith healer to come into his house to heal a common slave unless he was much more than just a common slave? And why would the apostles be so repulsed by this? Viewed in this context, the story makes a lot of sense, especially considering Jesus' record of forgiving prostitutes and adulterers, uh, and blessing a gay union. But uh, that's, so that's an actual story that uh, I think a lot of uh, uh, believing uh, same-sex couples can draw a lot of inspiration from. Jesus was not a homophobe. It is amazing what you can find in academic journals these days, I have to say. So, beloved boys... Tammy Sager, did you find anything even half as interesting in your volume of that journal? A hundred percent no, but um, I was too busy praying not to get an erection. Um, <laughs> uh, a kind of an, uh, an experiment where not so much the result was surprising, but the methods were. It's uh, make love and lose your religion and virtue. Recalling sexual experiences undermines spiritual intentions and moral behavior. So the they discovered that if you take people and have them either recount a sexual experience or the control group would recount how they went from their home to a movie theater, say, and then they would ask, what place do you want to go to? And they gave them different locations, one which would be religious. They discovered that, believe it or not, those who had just thought about past sexual experiences would want to go somewhere like Miami. Um, (laughs) Recalling sex experiences makes you more selfish and less uh, selfless and less uh, transcendental and more horny. <laughs> I'm quoting the scientists here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tammy Sager, thank you so much. Aman Ali, what did you well, find in your volume? It's not so much of a factoid, but it's an interesting subject. It's talking about um, within the Zionist Jewish community um, this issue with um, the number of people that are delaying marriage, and there's just a rise of people that are single. And a lot of people feel a, a strong disconnect with uh, the faith and, w- and what it preaches, and the social aspects of religion aren't often talked about a lot. And so a lot of people think, oh, religion, you got to make it cool, make it hip. But it's actually like social justice and all these things that a lot of younger people resonate with, like these things are being pulled out. And so they're saying that has a lot of the reason why uh, a lot of young, uh, younger uh, Jewish Zionist people um, don't feel as connected to the faith anymore. 
Very good. So I guess you'd call that delayed marriage among young Zionist Jews from Aman Ali. Absolutely. Right? From Tammy Sager, we heard that sexual recollections uh, make you selfish and go to Miami and less transcendental <laughs> and a few other things. And from John Fugel saying, we heard th- about the beloved boys. Okay, it is time now for our live audience to vote on these three really wonderful IDKs. The winner... We'll go on to the final round and face our audience winner earlier. So audience, please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions you see right there on the screen. All right, the live voting has closed. The audience votes have been tallied. And our panelist winner tonight with, I would just have to call this an overwhelming 75% of the vote for his IDK about beloved boys, Mr. John Fugelsang. Congratulations. Uh, John, you will now play the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, competing against tonight's winner, which you will recall was Martin Kahn's. Martin, why don't you come back up on stage, please? And I will now explain how this last brief final round works. In a moment, we will reveal a topic related somehow to tonight's theme, Oh My God. The two of you then, John and Martin, will have to come up with an IDK on the spot. Now, just in case you happen to make a mistake or make something up, don't forget we've got A.J. Jacobs, our fact checker, standing by. (laughs) Now, what is our final topic? Well, in the U.S., Roughly 23% of the population is entirely unaffiliated, including about 3% who identify as atheists. Some people, of course, see religion as little more than superstition. So for tonight's final round, that's our theme, superstition. John and Martin, we want you to tell us something we don't know. Maybe it's a superstition of your own or someone in your family. Maybe it's a story from history. Maybe it's just a good piece of Stevie Wonder trivia. Good luck. Have fun. We'll give you a minute to come up with something good. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit TMSIDK.com to get tickets to upcoming shows or to be a contestant. If you'd like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by TMSIDK underscore show. All right, John and Martin, it's time. You'll tell us something we don't know about superstition. John Fugelsang. Well, let's go with the superstition from the Bible uh, about touching oneself, also known as Onanism. comes from the biblical story of Onan. God smites Onan's brother Ur. Uh, Ur was a wicked man. Maybe he was angry he was named Ur. Um, (laughs) Onan's father comes in and says, My son, your brother didn't leave any heirs. Uh, God wants you to go in unto thy brother's widow and continue his bloodline. you got to follow our laws, kid. Onan didn't feel right about this because his brother's not even cold yet. He's being called upon to shag the widow. But he starts doing the Lord's work, uh, realizes this is nuts. They won't be his kids. It can't be fun for the lady. And so just when he's about to reach the point of no return, Onan spills his seed on the ground. This infuriates the Lord, and God smites Onan on the spot, the end. Uh, This story's been used for generations to say that any kind of non-procreative sex is wrong, meaning birth control, uh, same-sex uh, relations, and, uh, and masturbation, which is now called onanism, which he didn't even do. Um, but when you actually read the text, you see that what he really did, his sin wasn't spilling his seed, his sin was disobeying a direct order from the commander-in-chief. 
So what we've looked at is thousands of years of toxic confusion, guilt, and shame because some dead guys got the story mm. wrong. It's a superstition. Wow, John Fugel saying, well done. <laughs> Martin Kahn's beat that. Yeah, so this is a superstition that I'm not sure it comes from a religion particularly, um, but I heard about it when I was working in India. And so apparently, if you are an Indian woman and you have a brother, one super inauspicious thing you can do is to wear certain precious stones. The cool thing about the superstition is that so you have to go to your fortune teller and figure out whether you're like, you know, powerful enough to like wear these stones. If your fortune teller tells you it's just not for you and you wear them anyways, the bad luck doesn't befall you. Oh, it befalls uh, your little brother. brother. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of pressure. So, uh, so interesting. So, AJ, I know you've only had a, a, a second here, but uh, we've heard from John and Martin a couple of really interesting stories about wearing jewels that would curse your brother, essentially, and that Onan got a bad rap, and then we kind of rode that wave with him. What can you tell us? Well, I did do some googling on uh, the sin of Onan, and I kind of got to some unpleasant uh, places that <laughs> maybe I... I want to add one thing about the Bible and sex. Um, the Bible is not necessarily anti-sex. There are some pro-sex parts. The Song of Solomon is often thought super of. Super sexy. It's mm-hmm. like super sexy. Fantastic. This is in the Bible. It says, your two breasts are like two fawns. Twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Hot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, AJ, thank you so much. (laughs) It is time now for our live audience to pick a winner. We'll use a simple throat vote here. Just make as much noise as you can for what you think is the better IDK. And remember, all night long, the same criteria. Was it something you did not know? Was it worth knowing? And something that is true, or at least true-ish. Okay, let's first hear what you thought of John Fugelsang's IDK about Onan. Very, very respectable. And now let's hear what you thought of Martin Kanz's IDK about the cursed jewel-wearing of India. That is a very close one, but I have to say that Martin, I believe, edged John out by just a whisker. Congratulations, Martin. Really well done to both of you, and to really everybody tonight was just super sharp. Now, Martin, what prize could we possibly give you that's commensurate with the wisdom that you've displayed tonight? Well, you remember back at the top of the show when we heard from Trevor Noah of The Daily Show? They honestly believed that my prayers would get to God, I guess, faster or like they would be fast-tracked? Well, Martin, Trevor Noah has written a memoir about his very religious and very fascinating childhood in South Africa. It's called Born a Crime. And I'm happy to say that we have arranged to have him autograph a copy personally just for you as your prize. Congratulations, Martin. Awesome. Thank you. Our pleasure. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know about religion. Thanks so much to tonight's phenomenal panelists, John Fugelsang, Tammy Sager, and Aman Ali. Thanks to our awesome contestants. And thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something.
And next week, our first road trip. We're at Sixth and I in Washington, D.C. Our theme is wannabes. Our panelists, undercover economist Tim Harford, the comedian Ramin Mostafavi, and the librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden. How do you organize your books at home? I have baskets, I put rocks on top, and it's like a garden of unread material. (laughs) That's next week on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen at tmsidk.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>